So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with something different. Uh, the Mon Man will be back, as usual, on the 10th of the month. But in the meantime, I wanted to bring your ears this a three course tasting menu of the other show that I make with producer Matt. It is called The Retrospectors. It's a daily on this day in history entertainment show. Uh, It's 10 minutes a day. It's a perfect entertaining digest for your daily commute. But you don't need to listen to it on the day it comes out, as I hope we're about to demonstrate. You can binge on episodes. There's over 200 of them already uh, on whatever day you like. You don't even particularly have to be interested in history, frankly. Uh, Just like on The Modern Man, what we try and do on The Retrospectors is um, tell amazing real-life stories. Recent episodes have focused on the first man to be cryonically frozen, the experimental drug club where Victor Hugo used to toke, and the story of how the credit card came to be invented. If that sounds like the kind of factual entertainment you need in your life, then please search for The Retrospectors wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this right now, and click follow. I mean, do it anyway, because I'll get the ad revenue regardless of whether you listen. <laughs> I would really like you to listen. And um, my sophisticated uh, statistical algorithm uh, tells me that um, the number of people listening to The Retrospectors is slightly fewer than the number of people listening to this right now. So if you haven't checked out the show please do. Uh, All the links to follow the retrospectors on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the popular pod apps are in the show notes to this episode. But you don't need to do anything right now because we're just going to bring you a sample menu to your ears to prove the point that the retrospectors is worthy of time in your busy podcast consuming schedule. Um, So what we're going to bring you is three episodes of the show uh, themed around our regular features here on The Modern Man. We've tried to do something bespoke for the man fans. So trends, music and sex. Uh, the happy finish is a deep dive into chastity belts. Uh, the musical themed middle is the incredible story of how David Bowie and Queen came together to record Under Pressure. Uh, but first, just as we kick off each episode of The Modern Man with a story about trends, we'll begin this compilation with the craze for speed-eating contests. Uh, so without further ado, here is your free starter pack of me, Rebecca Messina, and Arian McNichol, The Retrospectors. Now today was a significant date in the annals of competitive eating because it was on this day that a maths teacher from Arizona, Michelle Cardboard Shell Lesko, achieved her third world record, this one for consuming the most amount of mayonnaise in three minutes. And some competitive eating records seem shocking, but to me this one didn't. I kind of feel like it's fairly achievable. How dare you undermine her incredible sporting prowess, Arian, so early You think it's achievable to eat an entire jar of mayonnaise (laughs) in one minute? So her record was the equivalent of 3.5 jars of mayonnaise in three minutes. Yeah. 
2,488 grams. Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen the video? No, I haven't actually seen the oh, video. Oh, Rebecca, you've seen the video, I'm guessing. <laughs> I couldn't. I saw, like, the still, but I just couldn't bring myself to play. Even the still made me gag. I've watched it, and I wish I hadn't. <laughs> She's got lined up in front of her eight full jars of mayonnaise. So imagine a huge, like, Hellman's pickle jar-sized mayonnaise jar. Eight of them lined up. How many can she get through? And in three minutes, she gets through three and a half jars and you're not impressed by that. It's spoons full of mayonnaise. It's just in the throat. I just don't know that a man should be watching a video of a woman eating mayonnaise, frankly. Like, I just think there's something unseemly about the whole thing. I mean, I'm Mr. Mayonnaise. I love mayonnaise. <laughs> I have it in all the usual places, like with chips and on salad, but I'll also have it with roast chicken, with omelette. I'll dip vegetables in it. I love it. In many ways, I've been training to break this record all my life. <laughs> and yet watching this lady just eat mayonnaise on its own, it's so horrific. It's so visceral. It's probably the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but maybe that's only because you haven't watched the other competitive eating videos, which are all repulsive. I watched some of the hot dog ones and some of the burger ones, and they are truly awful. And I suppose this is the thing that I mean. It's that the food stuff is repulsive that makes this an impressive feat, rather than the quantity I feel that no. she gets through. <laughs> no, I've seen her break the record for the fastest time to eat a bowl of pasta as well. 26.69 seconds. It's extraordinary. Pasta's delicious. I'm pretty sure I'd be. <laughs> she shovels it in she just like inhales it and it's it's hypnotic it's hypnotic she is an amazing human being she also holds the record for the fastest time to eat a hot dog with no hands <laughs> at 21.6 seconds <laughs> again who's watching these there's definitely some kind of unwholesome interest in this mm, does sound a bit pervy <laughs> she knows her way around a hot dog though i have to say she is probably best known to speed eating aficionados as the reigning champion in one of the more famous eating contests mm. the nathan's famous hot dog eating contest the reigning female champion yes she's the holder of the pink mustard belt <laughs> the the overall champion holds the mustard belt the overall <laughs> champion is joey jaws chestnut who's won 14 times in 15 years he ate 76 hot dogs which uh, to be fair makes lesko's 30.75 hot dogs look a bit paltry mm. and that includes the buns as well in 10 minutes so that's three three ten ten Sorry, I tried to do maths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now that you mentioned Nathan's famous hot dog eating competition, that is often regarded as one of the very early points in competitive eating because the Coney Island hot dog stand called Nathan's began to try to boost its publicity with this uh, competitive eating competition in 1916. And the, the long-standing story says that four immigrants decided to join an eating contest using Nathan's dogs to show who was the most patriotic, and that's how the contest began. Why would eating a hot dog show that you're patriotic? Well, supposedly this, this took place on the 4th of July, so they were oh. saying, look, it's the 4th of July, we'll celebrate by eating the foodstuff of our new homeland mm -hmm. and actually to be honest that story made me kind of sad so I was very pleased to find out that a promoter called Morty Matz I think we can all picture Morty he's a colourful character <laughs> he's smoking a sausage isn't he in the style of Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> he uh, eventually admitted that the competition actually was started by him and a friend in the early 70s and they made up the whole 1916 thing for publicity. And in fact, it was only in the mid-1990s that it really got a kick up the bum because that's when George and Richard Shea 
took over the publicity for Nathan's famous hot dog eating competition. By the way, we keep saying famous because Nathan's famous is the name of the brand. It's mm. not that famous. That's why we're explaining what it is to you. But it is famous amongst <laughs> the world of competitive eating viewers. They took over the publicity and they increased basically by turning it into a massive event. The hot dog contest's attendance from the hundreds to the tens of thousands, they started broadcasting it on ESPN with a deal with them where there's this kind of semi-ironic sports parody commentary on it but now people take it seriously um, and they established the international federation of competitive eating uh, since retitled major league eating which is the kind of genuine trade body for competitive eating these days with members including michelle lesko and joey chestnut and even at the beginning that was a joke the international federation of competitive eating was a joke. It sounds like a joke because it was. They just sort of made up this pretend competition title by way of continuing to add credibility to this not very famous hot dog eating competition. Yeah, but that's America, isn't it? When money becomes involved, suddenly it's not a joke. I mean, now you can win $10,000 by stuffing hot dogs in your mouth. Yeah, and as you say, it's on ESPN and there's real money prizes and there is supervision to make sure people don't hurt themselves, at least in the competitions themselves, if not in the training. Yeah, and Major League Eating now tracks records well beyond hot dogs. The dozens of foods involved, um, all the usual ones that you can imagine, like burgers and pizza and chicken wings and stuff. However, also beef tongue, yes, tiramisu, yeah. reindeer sausage, what, <laughs> cheese curds, which literally made me want to gag, <laughs> and something called sloppers that I couldn't even bear to research. There's a record for asparagus eating. That seems quite wholesome, doesn't it, by comparison? Yes. That's also held by Joey Chestnut. What does your body do with that much fat and salt? Because, I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes it's asparagus, but it's usually hot dogs. And Joey Chestnut's record for hot dogs recently... 22,000 calories, 1,332 grams of fat, and 54,242 milligrams of salt in 10 minutes. I mean, that is self-abuse, really, isn't it? Well, the guy from Man vs. Food, Adam Richman, very famously had to step down from the show for a while, at least the competitive eating component of it, because he was making himself genuinely unwell. And competitive eating has also caused deaths. Admittedly, I think never when it's been sort of quasi-official, like the ones we've been discussing on TV, you know, done with Guinness World Records and whatever, because they always have the paramedics on standby. But weirdly, there was one day in 2007 where two people in the United States died as a result of a competitive eating challenge. A guy called Travis Malouf, who was 42 years old and died after attempting to down a half-pound glazed donut in 80 seconds. That was a challenge at a branch of Voodoo Donuts, which was just right. like, hey, try this fun thing. Uh, and he, he, the, what witnesses said was, you couldn't tell that he was like desperate for medical assistance because it looks the same as someone who's eating a donut too oh, quickly. Wow. It's like making comical physical reactions to that. Okay. And then on the same day, how weird is that? A 20-year-old lady called Caitlin Nelson died having a few days earlier choked at a pancake eating contest at Sacred Heart University in, in Fairfield, Connecticut. So it's kind of difficult because the people who are the pros, the athletes at this slightly ridiculous sport, do then mainstream it so that people do try it at home, if you like, and it isn't mm. a safe thing to do. 
this is the problem with everything that starts off as goofy and fun you know it's meant to be an amateur thing like that's the origin of it right is you know pulling people up from the audience who can eat the most pies yeah but there's this minority of people that then become the elite they take it super seriously they're like chewing on silicon so they can bite as hard as a german shepherd <laughs> and then you get to this point where it's basically a full-time occupation that you have to sacrifice your body in order to reach the upper echelons of it yeah, like all sports it just becomes crazy and out of control not to mention growth <laughs> It's October 26th, 1981, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. It was on this day that Under Pressure was released, a song with possibly the most catchy bass line hook in the history of pop. Ollie, yeah. Rebecca, you want to give it a crack? Mine was better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I was doing Ice Ice Baby, actually. <laughs> well, OK, we'll get to that. But anyway, so Under Pressure shot straight to number one in the UK and spent weeks in the charts all around the world. But unlike some pop collaborations that are dreamt up in boardrooms or by sort of money people, Under Pressure began due to a relatively chance meeting between Queen and David Bowie in Switzerland. Well, Queen owned the recording studio. <laughs> Queen owned yeah. the, the mountain studios in Switzerland. And there are a couple of reasons that David Bowie was in Switzerland. One is that he was a tax exile, not very rough <laughs> Not very well known about Bowie either, is it? No. If you do enough weird stuff, people won't, won't notice <laughs> you with your taxes. It's got two different eye colours. Two different eye colours. It's, tr- it's distracting. <laughs> Even HMRC can't focus. So he had settled in Vevey, Switzerland, and he was actually recording the title track for the upcoming now mostly forgotten film Cat People and Queen were recording their 10th studio album Hot Space I've got to say neither of those no. projects really outshines Under Pressure Oh totally I, I listened back to Hot Space today to see whether you know Under Pressure really is the banger that saved the album and by God it is I mean, I appreciate Queen's musical diversity, but it's like a very mild, weird disco album, and then it's got Under Pressure on it. Bowie turns up, for whatever reason, probably in some way it had been arranged, but they all start uh, jamming on their instruments, and in fact, Bowie then does some backing vocals for a song called Cool Cat, but in the end, he wasn't very happy with them, so they never ended up being used. He's there for cat people, he's not there for cool cats. Yeah, well, because <laughs> he's got his cat quotes you. <laughs> he was like, I don't want to be pigeonholed <laughs> as the cat guy. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, Queen's drummer, Roger Taylor, says, hang on a minute, we're just doodling around. Why don't we actually write a song of our own? And that's where they started to do some recording. You're making it sound a little bit in a Blyton golly gee guys let's write our own song <laughs> it's probably worth remembering that there was a lot of wine and cocaine involved yeah, in this spontaneous this is jam session. <laughs> that is why I think there's no one definitive version on this because genuinely everybody was wasted <laughs> and doesn't know. Yeah. Um, but Deacon did... Dum 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 dum, which is so iconic that like you hear three seconds of it. Apart from Rebecca's rendition, you know exactly what song it is. <laughs> um, but then they all went to go and get off their face on fondue and blow. And when they came back, they couldn't remember the the basses. So there was like five different versions, and that was the first bit of tension. Apparently, we're trying to yes. remember what the bass line was going to be that was going to drive the whole song. And also, it raises the first question mark, which is who remembered who the bass line? Yeah, um, because. Deacon had something, but it may not have been that exactly because some versions of the story say that Deacon started playing something and Bowie went, actually, no, that's not what you had. It was more like this. Mm. And then he goes, dum, 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 da, da, dum, dum. And it's then that you have the foundations of the song start to be built. And John Deacon was the bassist. And ordinarily, if the question was who came up with the bass line, I'd be inclined to go with the bassist. However, 
Deacon himself would later credit it to Bowie on at least one occasion. I, I don't know why he didn't want the credit for it, but it just seems like he was really willing to pass that one off onto Bowie. But they're a famously collaborative band queen, weren't they? So like the pub quiz fact everyone knows about Queen is they're the only band ever to have all written, each individual member has written a UK number one single. Hmm. So like they were genuinely really collaborative and quite open to the idea that they all had musical influences, which is why they were doing a disco album and they were a rock band. Like they just did whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah. Didn't they? Although it's weird that also in the other direction, Bowie often credits it back to Deacon and he says no actually it was he who came up with it so maybe this is a case of just English gentlemen being gentlemen (laughs) but I mean obviously the baseline is crucial in Under Pressure I'm not saying it isn't but have you come across Feel Like? I I read about it but I haven't listened to it okay so now pause this show actually don't I'll put a link in the episode notes right so in the show (laughs) notes for this there's a link to Roger Taylor's demo for Feel Like which was a song that they were working on at Mountain Studios in Switzerland as Queen Credited to Roger Taylor as composer, and it is under pressure. It Hmm. doesn't have the lyrics. Bowie obviously wrote the lyrics, right? But it has Freddie improvising stuff over the top, which is really kind of like Hmm. bland, even though he makes it sound amazing because he's Freddie Mercury, but it's all just like, I want to take you in a truck. Come and get me. Bring me inside. (laughs) It's nonsense. (laughs) But he's doing his thing. And it doesn't have the bass line because the bass line hadn't been written yet, as we were just discussing, but every other element of it is under pressure so mm. in almost none of the versions do any of the people that were there ever say oh yeah and roger had a demo that was by the way exactly obviously evidently the same song <laughs> yes like they'd but- already written the song they just hadn't got to the bit that like unlocked the song yet mm. And Brian May has a really compelling account of how they did come up with the lyrics. He said that the procedure was that each of us went into the vocal booth consecutively without listening to each other and listening to the track vocalised the first things that came into our heads, including any words which came to mind. And then he says the next morning, David Bowie was in there first and told us he wanted to take the track over because he knew what he wanted it to be about. (laughs) It was unusual for us to relinquish control like that. But really, David was having a genius moment because that is a very telling lyric. Yeah, but also, like, look at the difference between what they came up with. Like, Bowie does it's the terror of knowing what this world is about watching some good friends screaming let me out <laughs> freddie comes up with Benita, bear. i mean literally <laughs> i think you're wise to let bowie do the lyric yeah and apparently it was bowie's suggestion that the two singers should work in isolation but then he broke his own rule so reinhold mack the producer who did some work on the hot space album later told this story where he said that mercury had adhered to this rule and gone off and gone okay well i'll write my stuff in isolation but Bowie had snuck down when Mercury was doing his recording, listened into the session, and then responded lyrically to what Freddie Mercury had been singing. And so that's why the final verse in the song is a really nice summary that brings together kind of the themes that both of them were exploring, (laughs) because he broke his own rule. But also I think that songwriting process explains a bit about what's unconventional about it as a duet, doesn't it? Because most duets are love songs or... The participants take verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and then join in at the end, right? But this is, to, I mean, okay, yes, they both, I, I suppose, in their public profile, had an ambivalence about their sexuality. So there's that in common. It's maybe not as odd to have those two male voices singing next to each other in 1981 as it might have been than if one of those voices was Barry White. But still, it's not clear when you listen the very first time, like, who was who? Mm. You know, like they're, they're both singing. They're not trying to steal each other's limelight. They're just, it's almost like their voices are instruments rather than they're singing a duet with each other. And there's loads of other elements that are just really unusual and unique about Under Pressure as well. One is that the video doesn't feature either artist. Mm. That It was actually just a load of stock footage. And apparently it's because... 
Bowie and Queen were both on tour. But it, that feels like a bit of a mm. paltry excuse. Do you know what I mean? It seems like that's an almost inconceivable missed opportunity. Mm. But it adds to this whole vibe that this was a lightning in a bottle moment and that neither artist was particularly interested in promoting this as like a collaboration. And they never performed the song together either. Even at Live Aid, where Freddie Mercury and David Bowie were both there, even the single, it didn't feature any photo of them on the cover or in the notes or anything like that. They really did zero promotion of this as a collaboration. Well, you do wonder how much of that was due to a kind of animosity between David Bowie and Freddie Mercury. So Brian May told Mojo magazine in 2017, Freddie and David locked horns without a doubt, but that's when the sparks fly and that's why it turned out so great. Obviously, Bowie admired Freddie Mercury. He performed at the tribute concert after he died in 1992. In fact, he performed under pressure with Annie Lennox. I mean, that just kind of tells you like, okay, so he admired him, but obviously didn't really get along with him and didn't really... You know, obviously felt some pride in having created this hit single, but also didn't really want to go around singing it with him. I think at the time also Queen had a lot of detractors. So, you know, they kind of were being regarded as being caught up in their own pomp and way over the top. Yeah, they weren't cool, were they? Queen were kind of never cool, which is what's made them always cool. All right, man fans, thank you very much for sticking around. If you've got this far into our sample starter pack of the retrospectors, I assume you are enjoying yourself. Uh, So why not pause the show right now and follow the links that I've put in the show notes to follow the show uh, wherever you get your podcasts or just search for the retrospectors and click follow. Um, You won't regret it. There are over 200 episodes, just like the ones you've already heard, to catch up on. But I promised you the modern man running order, so we've had trends and we've had music. Uh, Now it's time for the filth. Uh, So uh, in lieu of the foxhole, we're going to finish with this, the extraordinary story of the Frenchman and the chastity belt. It's January 21st, 1934, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. We're all familiar with the stereotype of the philandering French, but it was on this day in 1934 that a Parisian man named Henri Littière went to extreme lengths to curb his wife's infidelities by fitting her with a replica medieval chastity belt. Yeah, it's the strangest story. Henri Littière and his wife Suzanne had marital problems, which basically amounted to her just not being able to be anything but unfaithful to him. The story then goes on to say that uh, the Littiers visited together various museums to research about chastity belts, and it was at this point that he got the idea to presumably solve his marital woes by designing for his wife a chastity belt. He was eventually sentenced to three months in prison uh, for this crime, and he was fined 50 francs for cruelty to his wife. And this is the... I can't decide what I think about it thing. Um, (laughs) Because on the one hand, she genuinely seems to have said to him, I have a problem with infidelity and I want to be faithful to you and I am cooperating in this endeavour and I would like to have a chastity belt fitted. On the other hand, to actually put one of those on your wife is an act of domestic abuse, effectively, whether or not you've managed to groom her into thinking that's what she wants to do. But then you have the extra layer on top of it, comedy that was put onto it by the people who were reporting it at the time. So 
this is this is what was written in Time magazine, right? Austere institution. I mean, admittedly, obviously, in a kind of it must be true. I read it in the tabloids part of the mag, but this is what it said: because some amorous Frenchman was also a tattletale. Henri Littier, baker and husband, was last week hailed before a black-gowned judge of the Paris Correctional Court. A student of medieval life, Baker Littier had locked his frisky wife into a belt of steel and velvet. Monsieur le juge, Madame Littier begged, Henri may perhaps be a bit crazy, but I am too. I cannot look at a man without running after him. Yeah, so it's kind of telling of the level of accuracy that was expected in international news reporting at a time when you knew no one was going to follow up. But almost everything in that is wrong. Henri Littier wasn't a baker. He worked for the French Mint. He was a moneymaker. His wife is often, in all the English language reports, she was named as Juliette, but her name was actually Suzanne. And this whole scene of her prostrating herself before the court and saying, oh, if Henri is crazy, so am I. I couldn't find any account that that had happened. But I did find some French reports by putting that degree of mind to good use that sort of un- that explain a l- well they shed some light and they raise more questions on exactly what was going on between the two of them and what becomes obvious is that we're looking at a very dysfunctional relationship he had been in court two years earlier he'd been charged with locking his wife up inside their home they had a lot of rows there was violence as well but the French magazine Detective in March 1934 carried a report of this trial and it described how the couple visited an orthopaedic shop three times, once to research and place their order, second time for a fitting, and apparently on trying on the steel brace, Madame Littier said it was, quote, a little cold. And then finally for pickup where it was attached to her and Henri pocketed the key and off they went. It does seem to be these more florid reports in the English language press about how he was inspired by a visit to the medieval exhibit at the Cluny Museum and stuff. But at least according to those reports of the day, Suzanne was a willing participant in this odd plan and there was actually some suspicion it might have been a sex thing. Yeah, well that would be my suspicion. It sounds like a sex thing and a a journalist who did not have the language to talk about that the time. Yeah, and so the neighbour who originally reported Henri to the authorities, he had apparently witnessed some kind of scenes. Like, they didn't, at the time, I think they wouldn't go into the specifics, but he told the court, when I make love, I close the window and draw the curtains. Mm. So you're getting the sense that maybe they were exhibitionists as well. Well, the whole history of chastity belts themselves is riddled with historical Mm. confusion. Because we think now, and by we, I just mean the general public, uh, you know, haven't spent hours looking into this. <laughs> we think now of, sort of made, medieval maidens being locked up by, you know, the knights that go off to fight or whatever they were up to, putting these women into chastity belts. But that whole concept basically came about with the Victorians mm. who made replicas of chastity belts or this fictional thing they'd heard of from a few centuries prior, which was probably satire and then put them in the museums and people for a long time thought they were medieval chastity belts when they weren't because they never existed. Yeah, despite Littier's apparent inspiration from seeing medieval devices, there's no evidence that chastity belts were any more common in the 1430s than they were in the 1930s. In both periods, if it ever happened, it was basically 
a couple of crazy dudes rather than <laughs> a thing. There are mentions of chastity belts in medieval texts, but they are mostly religious metaphors. So it'll be something like, you know, your belt of chastity and your shield of virtue. So that no one's actually talking about wearing a chastity belt. There's really only one detailed description of a chastity belt, and it's really not supported by much physical evidence from this era. But it was first mentioned in a treatise on siege machines that was written by Konrad Kaiser von Eichstadt in 1405. And Kaiser was a German... German engineer and artist, and he had this sort of concept of uh, a chastity belt as an afterword in his treatise that was really all just about these kind of medieval machines that were used in castle-to-castle combat. But at the time, even, it was regarded as being an imaginative joke, and even then went on to be the topic of satire. Well, it's a hand-drawn illustration, and then he writes next to it, these are hard iron breeches of Florentine women, which are closed at the front. It may have literally been a joke about Florentine women not being up for it. So, I mean, yes, it is a sort of austere book about military technology, but it's got a blokey sense of humour. Some of the other things described in the book, which is called Bella Fortis, a cat-shaped chariot, invisibility devices, and fart power propulsion. So I think Kaiser had one of those weird German senses of humour, you know what I mean? Yes, but it was taken as a source for a long time that medieval people literally wore chastity belts, and there isn't a shred of evidence to that. And when they have metal-dated the ones that they had in museums, they've realised that they're much more recent than that. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that it came from the Victorian era because the Victorians, unlike the medieval people, the Victorians actually were obsessed with preventing masturbation, prudish about even talking about the downstairs departments, particularly on women. It makes sense that they would be the ones that would invent this stuff. Yeah, and ironically, the 19th century saw the creation of what are the only actual chastity belts we have proof of, which are chastity belts for men, aimed at curbing masturbation in teenage boys particularly. If the chastity belt was seen mainly as a satirical concept in medieval times, the reason that we might not pick up on that immediately is because our ideas about the sexes have shifted so much over time. So in the medieval era, and right up until the sort of 18th century, women were portrayed as being much more lustful and lacking in self-control than men. You know, the idea was that men had the self-discipline to resist, whereas women were all sort of lusty and they had to be controlled by men. So the idea of a chastity belt was really a joke about paranoid men. And so the references we do have from the time, we have things like woodcuts and prints and stuff. They would always show the man heading off with the key to the chastity belt, the woman sitting there with her chastity belt on and a hidden lover in the background with his duplicate key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've got the jealous husband like waving the key like I've got the key in the background and the joke is obviously like <laughs> yeah he is completely ignorant as to her sexual life yeah. isn't it that's the joke there was a, a book written by Albrecht Klassen in 2007 called The Medieval Chastity Belt, The Myth-Making Process. And in that, he talks about the whole business of chastity belt myth-making being similar to the way that we imagine everyone in the medieval era thought the earth was flat. And what he was hypothesizing is that it stems from this same desire to demonstrate a kind of lack of civility in bygone ages that we are comp- comparatively enlightened versus them. Mm. And I can imagine that that is sort of why so many of us, and me included, have taken it as a given that a chastity belt is a thing that existed, because we do think back to maybe all of those sort of torture devices that you see when you go on castle tours, and this just seems like an extension of one of those, something that's believable in its brutality. 
I suppose as well it's become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that, like the Blackberry, there are devotees <laughs> now, aren't there? So there, <laughs> there are people, even though it's way out of fashion now, are still interested as a sex thing in developing something like a chastity belt. Yeah, there are multiple companies producing these things, mostly for use, I think, in BDSM contexts, but they include companies such as MySteel, NeoSteel, and the rather less evocatively named Latowski. Why haven't they called it Letier? <laughs> <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get myself a pair of Ulrichs. <laughs> And with that, we have reached the end of this Retrospectors selection box. If you've enjoyed it, there is plenty more where that came from. Please click the links in the show notes and follow The Retrospectors wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we will be back with a brand new episode of The Modern Man on the 10th of April. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.